This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Stephen Drake is a hunting photographer whose work has helped to redefine how the hunting industry is perceived. An avid elk hunter, he frequents some of the most rugged and physically demanding terrain in the USA. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss new hunters, the rut, moose pee, and more. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Brownells. Brownells has been in business since 1939 and is a leader in firearms distribution. But Brownells carries much more than just guns and ammo. They also carry binoculars, rangefinders, survival kits, and countless other tools and products. I recently got my hands on a pair of Vortex binoculars and have been impressed by how crisp they are while out in the field. It's no surprise, Vortex is a major player in optics, so their cutting-edge technology was bound to make its way into their binoculars. I use mine while birdwatching, deer hunting, scouting new land, and checking out tuna activity in the open ocean. Check out these and more at www.brownells.com. Born in Helena, Montana, and I currently live in Bozeman, which is an hour and a half away, and um, I pride myself on being a Montanan at, at 31 years of age that has never left or moved elsewhere. So I would just say you're a smart man. I suppose. I, honestly, the more I travel, the more I just want to come back to Montana. And this has been a this has been a good year for not traveling a whole lot. So I've I've been really able to stick at home and do lots of awesome things here. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about your upbringing. So were your parents into the outdoors? Yeah, you know, growing up in Montana and probably really any mountain or outdoorsy community, you know, you're just naturally surrounded by it. And um, my parents have always been pretty outdoorsy people. They got me skiing at a really young age. And then from as early as I can remember, I was probably seven or eight years old, I'd follow my dad around hunting and he'd primarily waterfowl hunt. 
And so I'd go out to the, to the lake and stuff with him and, and just watch him hunt. And then when I turned 12, which is the legal age that you can start hunting in Montana, that's when I picked up a gun and started for myself. And so I wasn't, uh, I've got a lot of friends that are in their twenties and even thirties that they, they just recently got into it as a way to understand and just have full control of where their food comes from. You know, traditionally a lot of people maybe were, I don't know if against is the right word, but they just didn't understand hunting. And and now they see like, oh, wow, I can get like this wild organic meat that's never been touched by man that I have complete full control of that I, you know, I butcher, I process, I eat everything. Like there's been a, a lot of my friends that have picked that up in more recent years, which is, which is a really cool thing to see. Yeah. Okay. Now what would you call yourself? I mean, obviously a photographer, but would you say that you're in the hunting industry? Um, <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, I would say all of the work that I do is in the hunting industry. When I'm not doing work, I'm in the field, just keeping tabs on animals. I'm just like always outside. I guess maybe outdoorsman is, is as equal of a um, description as anything. All right. So tell me the story about how you started to do this professionally and that you were getting paid. Totally. Yeah. So I um, again, grew up hunting with my dad. I, I actually hunted with my mom a lot too. And, um, we would, we'd go around the elk woods, just, just archery hunting elk together. And as soon as I went to college, I suddenly was an hour and a half away from them and I just wasn't able to hunt with them as much. And so, so that's, that's really when I picked up a camera, I, I had a little bit of camera experience prior to that, but that, that's really when I picked up a camera as an effort to capture hunting. And my whole goal was just to photograph and film these really cool experiences that I was having with um, that I could then share with my parents. Oh, right. Yeah. So then about that time though, that's when Instagram, well actually Facebook kicked off and then Instagram soon followed. And, um, I started posting my stuff on there and then being in Bozeman, Montana, there's, there's actually a lot of hunt, hunting companies that are based here. And so some people here saw what I was, saw what I was sharing and the, the, the photos and, and videos that I was sharing, it was a lot less about the kill and it was a lot more about the experience of hunting because hunting is definitely not killing. Hunting is going out there, spending days, weeks, months, even, even years in the pursuit. And uh, one analogy I use all the time is in 2011, I drew this um, limited entry rifle elk tag in Montana and I spent 44 days hunting until I finally killed on my 45th day. So, so the kill was one 45th of that entire experience. And so I, I think one issue with social media, especially is when you see, when all you see is a, a trophy photo, it's like, you don't get the rest of that experience. You don't get all the hard work and everything that went into that. If a hunter looks at a trophy photo, they probably understand that they're like, Oh yeah, you didn't just go out and shoot that animal. You probably spent, you know, Lord knows how much time and effort, but as a non-hunter, and that's the problem with social media is it's, a, you know, everyone has access to it. But as a non-hunter, if you see that, you just see a, a person smiling. And, and it looks like they're smiling at the death of the animal, which is not the case. You're, you're, you're smiling because you put in so much time and effort and you finally, it finally amounted to this. So, yeah, you know, I'm a late, I'm a late hunter. I didn't start hunting until my early 30s. And that was the biggest surprise for me was that. It was that much work because I thought you would go hunting for the day and you got your deer maybe that day or the next day. And that was it. You know, I thought yeah. it was that easy. And I think part of the problem too is just, you know, being so ignorant and so detached to hunting. You could like, I would go into Walmart when I was younger to buy my fishing license. 
And I'd look up on the wall and I would just, I'd see that the hunting pictures or the trophy photos, the grip and grins. And it really turned me off. And it actually made me more against, I was against hunting at the time just by being ignorant, but, and by being brought up into an anti-hunting family, but I would see the grip and grins and it would put, push me back. But to say that, I feel like that one grip and grin photo could be surrounded by 50 pictures of the experience. And all I would have seen at that time anyway, was just that headshot, you know, that grip and grin photo. So I, I feel like so much of it is if, if we could just get people to stop and listen and understand the, the overall picture that maybe people would be a little more willing to listen, if that makes sense. You know, my parents are super, yeah, my parents are super against hunting, but now, you know, every time we talk every day, what are you doing? I'm going hunting. What are you doing? I'm going hunting. (laughs) It finally got to the point where it's like been two years now since I've shot a deer and they're at the point of being like, well, did you get one? Did you get one yet? I don't think they really want me to get one, but they're still like, they're like, man, it's been a long time, April, you know? And, and if my parents are thinking that way, it makes me think that if the general public could maybe understand that, that we'd have a better chance of keeping this thing alive. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So when I backing up to what year was that, I guess, probably, probably 2011, that's kind of when I first started getting pretty active on social media and, and got some notoriety from some of the local hunting brands. And, um, Way back then, uh, Sika Gear actually they reached out to me and they put together a team of five guys that were just just shooting shooting and, and photographing hunting in a different way that nobody had really seen before. And I was lucky to be one of them. And they they flew us all down to Las Vegas for 24 hours to go to this big industry trade show, which is it's called Shot Show. It's is the Shooting Hunting Outdoor Trade um, Association show, and it's it's the biggest hunting trade show in the world. There's like 80,000 people go through there daily, I think. But anyways, they wanted us to go down and they're like, hey, we want you to go down and go walk through the show and just look, just look at how poorly hunting is being represented. And so we go down there and it's, it's pretty awful. You know, you got these like 20 foot wide banners of just, just garbage and primarily, you know, trophy photo stuff or or people like hunting in high fence operations, which is not hunting. That's just pay somebody $20,000 to go walk up and shoot something. And then, you know, you get to sit there and hold your deer and look all macho. Like that is not hunting that 0.1% of the hunting population does that 99% of the people like are hard workers and everything, but you're, you're seeing this like high fence, like garbo that's out there. And so, so anyway, so we went down there, saw that, saw how terrible it was. And then it was basically, it's like, okay, we're going to help. We're going to give you guys a platform to be able to share your stuff on. And, um, we want, like, we want to be kind of at the at the forefront of this movement and try to try to change the face of hunting because if it keeps going the way that it is, you know, we might not have hunting. And so, so now, fast forward like ten years, I mean, I would say it's changed drastically. There, there's so many companies and individuals and and just like general society is looking at hunting in a lot different way. And kind of like I said at the, at the beginning of this podcast, I have numerous friends that have gotten into hunting partly because they, they see this really cool mountain experience and they might be skiers or mountain bikers. And it's like, well, Hey, like here's another way that I can get outside. And then secondly, they're like, I really want to know where my food comes from. I I, I love to eat meat, but I, I don't want to buy, you know, a piece of beef that I I'm just really unsure of what, you know, the, the process that it went through to get to market. Yeah. How much of this boom or, you know, how much of this surge in new hunters do you think is related specifically to whole foods and, and the organic food movement? Probably, probably quite a bit. Yeah. I would say quite a bit for sure. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the 
the hunting photos because this is always a very interesting topic of discussion for me. Uh, just again, I'm, I'm learning through my parents. They're like my case study here. Yeah. So <laughs> I was speaking to my mom the other day on my way hunting when she was saying, geez, you know, <laughs> it's been a while. And she said, look, I've really been enjoying uh, your posts. I really love seeing your Insta stories and the experience that goes into it. But I've got to tell you, I really didn't like that photo that you posted the other day of your hunting coordinator. So she was referring to Anchored Outdoors um, hunting coordinator, Jackie Holbrook. The photo yeah. that you posted of Jackie smiling with her deer. I really didn't like that. Um, I don't like trophy photos. I said, mom, first of all, that wasn't a trophy photo. And second of all, she was smiling because she put in a ton of work and she was finally able to bring this animal home to feed her child and her yeah. family, you know? And then lastly, <laughs> mom, do you even know what a trophy hunt is? Like, let's have this talk about trophy hunting. And then, <laughs> you know, we went down the, the whole thing about lions in Africa and Donald Trump Jr. And we ended up down this crazy segue of like trophy hunting. But I want to talk to people like my mom who really don't like to see the photo of someone smiling behind a dead animal. And I have to give you some context so you would just understand. I personally have never taken a photo smiling with a dead animal, and I don't foresee myself doing it anytime soon. But I have friends who really fight me on it and totally are against what, you know, they're like, no, go share it. Show people you smiling. It took so much work. You're so happy. What are your thoughts? I got a whole lot of thoughts on this, but I want to hear your thoughts on it. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm basically the same page as you. I don't, I don't take trophy photos with, sometimes I'll take one, but I like you rare, you'll rarely ever see a picture of me smiling with a dead animal. Um, I, I shed hunt a lot. And so in, in the springtime, um, deer and elk will, will drop their antlers and I, I just get a hoot out of that. So you'll see, you'll see lots of photos of me holding shed antlers and smiling, but, but yeah, I mean, I think it potentially, I think it can do more damage than good because there's so many people that just don't understand and um, that, that just see that and they think you're just smiling at the death of an animal. So I guess for me, it's like, well, having a, having a platform, it's like, eh, even though that photo is probably going to do super well on social media, I'm going to, I'm kind of incentivized to post stuff like that. It's not in the grand scheme of hunting. I think it's probably unwise to share stuff like that. So. Yeah, like I, I totally get it. And, you know, Adam, Adam Greentree is a friend of mine and, and he just, he really is solid on his opinion on this. It's that you've worked hard, you're happy, you owe it to people to, and to yourself to be able to share that happiness. But, and it's different for everybody. But for me, I don't kill something, whether it be a, well, maybe with a grouse, maybe, but I don't see <laughs> or watch a big game animal get killed and immediately burst into excitement. Like, yeah. and again, it's different for everyone and it's different. It's a different, um, depending on the situation. But for me, it's like a moment of, Oh my God, did it get shot? That's yeah. the first moment. Right. And then it's like, oh, is it going to drop? Where's it going to drop? And then there's that, maybe you've got to go tracking. Right. And then you get to your animal and then it's this moment of just like, for me anyway, it's this real profound moment. And then I have this temporary moment of grief and then relief and then excitement. And then there's a smile. Yeah. But I just, for me personally, wouldn't want to share just the smile at the end. I would like to share the whole, like if I ever am going to share a photo of me smiling, holding a, a, an animal's head up, as much as that pains me to even say it, um, I would want to show the progression of emotions. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So do you get grief from, you know, on that, on that front from sponsors and stuff? Do they want you to post the kill shots or the, uh, the trophy shots? 
Not really. They don't. They don't seem to care. And I mean, a, a lot of them. I'm mean, sick of sick of gear, especially. I mean, they, they were the ones that are like, "Hey, we need to change this. The, we need to change the face of hunting, and we need to quit sharing trophy photos, quit sharing hunter with dead animal, and show everything else that happens." And so, um, actually, every year for the past, I don't even know, five years now, I've been a uh, Sika has an annual photo contest where people submit, you know, like twenty. Well. Gosh, I think we had like a hundred thousand photo entries last year. It was insane. But anyway, I, I was a judge for it, and I I think this year was the was it this year? Yeah, this year was the first year that. Um, so we have three categories: we have whitetail, big game, waterfowl. And this year was the first year that a dead animal did not make it into any of the finalists, which was pretty cool. And I mean, that was maybe maybe that was a little bit tactful on our part, but uh, but still, it's like no, like. I mean, there's some really epic, like experience-based photos um, out there. And I, I think it's really cool that companies like Sika Gear are kind of taking this, putting their foot down and being like, hey, like we know we might, it, we know we could probably get more engagement and probably do better and probably sell more jackets and pants and whatever if we posted, you know, guy with dead animal because it's like, oh, this Sika Gear helped me get to this dead animal. But they're like, hey, we need to look long-term and, and down the road, which, which has been pretty cool. So yeah, I, I really haven't gotten much grief in the social media world. Sometimes I'll post stuff like that, but I've kind of learned to just kind of keep it to myself. Okay. Let's talk about something else that I, I just have not known who to ask. So <laughs> the modern huntsman comes out with the most beautiful magazine ever. I love that, that magazine. And I read it with my daughter at night. I mean, we love the beautiful photos and the experience and the writing. Why does the modern huntsman get grief from a large percentage of these macho hunters. Um, like what, what is so offensive about it? I, I, I just genuinely don't understand not in the hunting industry. I'm, I'm seeing on social media that, that, you know, this new age of hunter is getting grief from the old school guys. And I don't know why. Yeah, I, I see that too. And I, I, I know a lot of people that give them a especially hard time and I'm just like, geez guys, like this is kind of the next, the next wave of hunters, if you may. But I, I think it all, it all boils down to um, authenticity and kind of legitimacy. I, I think a lot of people look at modern huntsmen and, and I mean, anybody and they're like, Hey, you've only been hunting for like three years. Like you have no connection or no understanding whatsoever, but it's like, you know, everybody's got their own story on how they got involved. Right. So you can't, you can't hate on them for that. But I, I think it, I think it boils down to a, they don't, they're just like, these guys came out of nowhere. Some of them have been hunting for like two years. Like some of them have killed like one deer. Like what, what do they know about hunting? I, I'm guessing that's probably the, the, the bad rap on, on modern huntsmen specifically, but. What about on just the new hunter in general, the guy who's clean cut and does wear camo and doesn't go out in his flat, you know, his plaid flannel shirt. Um, <laughs> well, is there a major disconnect there between the two groups that maybe I don't know about? Well, I don't know. There's, there's just, things are progressing so fast in society. I mean, you know, we didn't have Google earth, what, 10 years ago. And it's like, I, I use Google earth and like on X and like all these, these platforms to do all this like crazy e-scouting. And, you know, you look at the, the old timers, even guys that were hunting 20 years ago, like they just had to go figure it out. And so now like access to information is, is endless for sure. Do they feel like it's unethical? I think some of the ethical arguments come into 
accuracy of some of these new weapons, especially rifles. Um, because yeah, not, not that long ago, you, it was, it was a incredible shot to make a 400 yard shot at a steel target this big. It's like, now nah, it's like, I, I have a rifle that I can shoot 700 yard groups like that. And it's, it's easy. So there, there's an ethical, there's a potential ethical dilemma happening there for sure. Archery is a little bit different because, you know, an animal's still stinking wild. And if, you know, if people are taking more than a 50 yard shot, there's a lot of things can go wrong by the time your arrow gets to a target at 50 yards or a hundred yards. I mean, I, I hear of stories all the time of people shooting, shooting animals at a hundred plus yards. And I'm just like, well, I know you can probably hit a target really, really accurately at that range. And like, you know, I, I can for sure, but it's like, there's so much time that elapses between when you shoot and when that arrow gets to that animal that, that, you know, that, that is certainly an ethical dilemma for sure. And, you know, some of the old timers when they're bow hunting, it's like 10 yard shot max. And so, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, times are just changing so stinking quick. It's, I mean, I have a hard time keeping up with it. So what about things like game cams? Is that unethical? I think what's unethical would be the, I think the game cams that can transmit like real time data. And, um, so like, if you've got one out and you got to have cell service for these cameras. So if you got one out on a mountainside right on this trail or a wallow or something, and if, if it takes a picture of like this massive animal and you're like, Oh man, he hit it like just now. And then you go run up there the next day and kill that animal on the same thing. It's like, is that fair chase? You know, I don't know. I honestly, I think you would be taking away from your own experience at that point. Like I think part, part of the joy of hunting, especially in the mountains is it's, it's a bit of a mystery, you know, and you go into these big wilderness areas and like, you don't really know what's out there. Um, I do run a bunch of trail cameras. I just, I love getting footage of these elk and seeing what they're doing year round. And, and yeah, I, I've gotten some of the, the craziest, coolest footage that I've, that I've, I mean, that I've ever seen. And it's, uh, so I, I love trail cameras from that aspect. I'm not, I think if you're hunting over a camera or, or using a camera to give you kind of real time data, I think that's probably a little, that that crosses the unethical line, but in, in the United States, so I mean, every state is managed differently, and so like Montana is pretty tight on that stuff. You can't um, you can't have uh, transmitting cameras, but like Utah and some of these other places, you can have transmitting cameras, and I mean, people are willing to do anything to try to you know target and find their four hundred inch bull elk or whatever. So um, there, yeah, people will spend spend five hundred bucks on. 10 game cameras and no problem. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Look, I love game cams because I can, I've got one set up on a Fox den. I've got, you know, uh, I've been able to see moose come right up to my cabin. I can see what the elk are doing. I'm not even using it for hunting. I, I like to know where the, you know, that the animals are there, but I love being able to see what's going on out there with them being uninterrupted. Yeah. Yeah. For um, sure. What about food plots? That's really interesting to me because for me as a hunter who is trying to just enjoy the experience, be connected with nature, get my meat, there are times when, especially after a hundred days straight of nothing or two years straight of nothing, I just want to put a bunch of corn down, get him there, take my shot and go. Are are food plots (laughs) considered, so are food plots considered unethical? I think they are. And I mean, you compare food. Okay. So like a lot of states in the Midwest, in the United States in the Midwest, um, I, I don't know them specifically, but like you can, you can bait animals, you can put out, you can like put in food plots. And I mean, a lot of these people, they know, they know so many of the deer from birth. They're like, you know, they, they pick their sheds every year and it's kind of like a farm. 
it, there's just like not much mystery left to some of that hunting. And it's like, you know, if, if somebody owns a hundred acres in the Midwest, like that's a, that's a bunch of land. That's, that's plenty enough land to like, um, create your property in a way that it's like, okay, I'm going to like plant all these trees here. And then down, down below, I'm going to put a food plot. Then I'm going to put a pinch point here. And then like, you're basically managing your own little whitetail herd that probably never even leaves your hundred acres. And I mean, I, I get it when it's like, that's your only hunting opportunity. It's like, well, geez, I, I got a hundred acres or, or I got five acres. I'm going to do everything I can to incre- increase my, my odds. But at the same time, uh, you compare it to like hunting in some of the Western States where you just got, you know, 200 square miles of pure wilderness. And it's like, food plot, whatever, like that stuff does not exist. And you you can't even like, I mean, it just takes pure determination and wits and quite a bit of luck to to make it happen in in a place like that. And I've I've grown up in in more of that environment. And so it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to even think about kind of managing your wildlife population. So they, they, they seem like farm animals. They don't even seem like, it seems like you've got your own little high fence operation, but without a fence around it. But so are you, do you, are you against that? I know you don't like the high fence, but do you, are you against that? Or would you, if you were desperate to eat, would you, would you hunt like that? Well, if I was desperate for sure. I mean, it's, it's not legal in Montana. <laughs> so I've, I just never even really thought about it. But I mean, a, as a hunter, that's like, I, I look at people that are like, Ooh, look at this big animal I shot. And then, and it's like, yeah, I shot it on a, at a corn feeder. I'm like, well, cool, I guess. I mean, you, you still had to do a <laughs> lot of work to get to that. Like, I totally get it. But I'm like, you just, you can't, I don't know. At the end of the day, we're all hunters. We shouldn't judge each other too much, but I, I do a little bit. So. <laughs> but I get it. You know, if I had to equate it to fishing, it's like if I just go to a stocked pond to get my fish to bring it home versus going on this epic Alaskan adventure, right? Like you get the job done and you get there eventually and you sit there to eat your meat, but you're missing a huge part of the experience, right? Coming up, Stephen and I cover some hunting terminology that all new hunters should know. Again, thank you to Brownells for making this episode possible. I never knew how important optics were until I started hunting. From scopes to rangefinders and binoculars, Brownells is a one-stop shop for hunters of all experience levels. Check them out at brownells.com and keep them in mind when it comes to making your next big purchase. Okay, um, can we go through some very basic things that you will have answers to that my listener might be wondering about? Sure. Okay. What is the rut? Can you please explain what it means when a deer goes into the rut? I'm actually making this episode for my mom. So mom, I hope you're listening. Nice. nice. What, what, what is the rut? Oh boy. I hope I have the right answers for all these. So the rut is when um, pretty much any animal, well, when the, the females go into heat, a lot of animals only go into heat um, so they can reproduce like at, at a single time period throughout the year. And so if you're in the Northern hemisphere, deer and elk and antelope, most hooved species go into rut in the fall. If you're in the su- Southern hemisphere, I, I believe it's flipped. Um, but that's when they, uh, that's kind of when they implement most hunting seasons because it's, I don't know, I think they feel bad for hunters because we're, we're not very good hunters or something. We, we, we need the rut to, uh, to help us. Basically when, when the rut happens, the, those bucks and those, the bulls, they, they let their guard down a little bit and it, it gets a little bit easier to hunt and potentially harvest an animal, but hunting is not easy. It's definitely not a given. No. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's the yeah, rut. yeah. And in, in Southern Hemisphere, it's it really kicks off end of March, April. Okay. 
And, uh, and we have, obviously we've got all, we've got, I think five or six species here, but let's just talk about fallow for a second. So the fallow, they get all hot and horny and they start to make, just for people listening and you mom, they really make this crazy, like, <laughs> it's, I can't do it justice, but this crazy, <laughs> this good. crazy sound. <laughs> and I mean, I don't use a, a buck call, I use it like a doe call to be able to call on the bucks, but these hot and horny bucks will either be trying to find their does or they will, you know, have lost one or think they've lost one and they'll come in to come and get her. And then that gives you the opportunity to get nice and close and take your shot. Yeah. Uh, in, in a nutshell, I'm not a he, I, I love the rut, but I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the bucks in the rut. Cause if it takes long and, you know, if you take too long to actually get your deer, they'll, they're covered in urine. I don't know if it's the same with your deer there, but, um, cause I've actually never, embarrassingly enough, um, cause I do hunt muleys in BC. I've never actually seen a big muley in the rut. Not like I've been able to watch fallow, but fallow, you can see their penises and they're shaking them back and forth and they're spraying piss all over themselves. Oh, yeah. Is it the same thing with whitetail and, uh, and mule deer? Yeah. I've never seen a whitetail do it. I, I, I know they do. I've, I've seen elk, elk do it a lot. Moose, especially. Well, actually, the cow moose, a cow will like, you probably better intel on this, but it's like they make these like, these little like, call it a wallow, but they, they like dig out a little spot and then they pee in it. And then the cows mm-hmm. actually roll in it so that they smell like full of pheromones or something, I guess. And that actually attracts the bulls. It, yeah, animals are, animals are crazy. Wait, so the females, now I've hunted moose, but very, very, very limited because I'm just not in town long enough to ever actually eat a moose. Um, but wait, so I know that for deer, the bucks pee. Yeah. Yeah. Deer and deer and elk and stuff. It's, it's opposite. Like the, but with moose, the, the female or the cows are the ones that do the peeing. You know, I, I'm not sure it? if the bull also pees all over himself, but I, I know that the cows will also do that. Yeah. They'll, they'll dig out a little thing and then they'll pee in it and then they'll roll in it to get all smelly to attract a male. So it's, it's, it's kind of the opposite, right? Cause it's like a, uh, a bull is trying to attract females and then the female moose are trying to attract the male. So yeah, kind of crazy. I can't, I can't think of anything more terrifying than calling in a big bull moose. It's pretty wild. <laughs> I've never, never done it, but I just, I mean, even fo- calling in like a red deer down here is they're, they're, they, they like come running in and they roar it's, yeah. and like the ground is vibrating under you. And it, it actually, puts me into complete paralysis. <laughs> have, you, have you called in a big moose before a big bull? Uh, a couple of times. Yeah. We've been, uh, I've been on different photo trips uh, way up in the Northwest territories in the Yukon up in Canada, basically in the, in North America, the, the further North you get, the bigger the moose get. So if you get to up to Alaska or the Yukon and the Northwest territories, they call them Alaska Yukon moose and they're giant, Huge. like 1200 pound animals with up to 70 inch width antlers. So yeah, we, we, I was photographing some, some bow hunts up there and a couple of times we'd call them into like 10 yards, but you're, you're hunting in these willows that are like 10 feet deep and you just couldn't get a shot. And I had one other time we were, uh, the hunter was out ahead of me and the hunter and the guide, and then suddenly I became the wrangler. So I've got, I've, I'm holding on to four horses and, and again, the, the brush is like above my head and all of a sudden the horses start kind of, kind of getting jittery, start to whinny a little bit. And I'm like, Oh, thinking it's a bear or something's rolling up so i jump on one of the horses and like five yards away is this big bull moose and he's just like looking at these horses thinking that they're cows <laughs> oh my god i wonder if he would try to mate with a horse i don't know that's a good question actually yeah i've been on i've got 
one of my it's a very lucky photo but it's it's a pretty pretty iconic shot um i was up in northern british columbia a couple years ago and we were trailing i think we had like 12 horses in our in our string and uh this this bull moose comes in. He, he's a young bull moose for up there, and he walks into like ten yards of all the horses. Like you know, we got pack boxes on. It's like there's like five humans on top of these horses, and the bull's just like ten yards away, just just grunting. There's like oh oh, and he and he's just like looking right at these horses, and he, he just thinks they're cows um, or females. So anyway, eventually we start kind of moving on, and then the the bull ends up walking right between. Um, the guy in the lead and then the hunter. So I've got a picture of hunter with a big giant moose and then guide in the back. And everybody's like, it's Photoshopped. I'm like, no, that actually happened. But yeah, that, that single bull came into a group of 12 horses and just stood there. And I mean, he, he got our wind as in like, he got downwind of us and smelled us and like knew we weren't horses, but moose, especially when they're in the rut, like, I mean, their eyes glaze over, like they are so, determined to find a female it's i don't even think they can even think they have yeah, only like one thing on mon- their mind <laughs> right they're like monsters seriously um so that's my next definition what's a rattle we'll just do five just for i like to throw out these little bits of information for people listening cool to, i dig um, it yeah yeah talk to me about a rattle what's the rattle well i don't really do any rattling but what rattling is is you take two antlers and you just bang them together because in the rut um you will often get bucks or bulls or, or male animals they'll, they'll be fighting and they'll be cl- clashing their heads together and that sound alone will, will can bring in um bigger older mature animals because they're like oh like somebody's fighting like i bet i'm gonna go in and try to try to beat them up so it can be a, it can be a good hunting tactic so totally it works it worked really well for me this year and as a note for people if you are out in the bush and you hear animals rattling run yeah. Just get to them. Because <laughs> honestly, I've walked up on bucks fighting and they have, they just are totally shut down to you even being there. Yep. It's really interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but if you ever Google or YouTube fallow bucks rattling, you watch them. I think they're, they must be in a farm, but you'll watch different, they'll be si- walking side by side with each other and they're, they're staring each other in the eye, mirroring each other. And then all at once at the exact same time, they turn and they start bashing their heads and then they separate. And, and again, they mirror each other and they mirror each other perfectly. Like you, you almost wouldn't even realize it was two different animals. Crazy. Yeah. You have to look it up. Uh, okay. Third definition. What is a wallow? A wallow is. And it's so funny because we use these terms ourselves, right? Like I know, right? <laughs> I'm stuck in a rut. I'm in a wallow. But yeah, what is a wallow when it comes to deer um, or animals? The wallow is. I know elk really well. I'm not, a, I don't know deer quite as well. That's but okay. It's, it's no, tell same, it, so. an elk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so a wallow is uh, is like a is can be a watering hole, can be a little mud spot, um, somewhere where a male animal will come in and start tearing up the ground, and he'll pee in it, leave his scent there. He'll he'll often roll in it. Um, a lot of bucks and bulls that are in the rut, if you you know you run into them in the woods, and they're they're just covered in mud, and they've just been rolling around in this little wallow. Some of them, I mean, they'll use it to cool down because in the rut, you know, they'll be they'll be on their feet for twenty four seven, just chase chasing cows and running off other other males that are coming in trying to take the herd that they'll go to wallow and cool down. So that's a quick definition of wallow. What's a scrape? Scrape. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty new to scrapes actually. I mean, I, I know what a scrape is. I know that so whitetails especially will, will come to, I guess they'll like rub their antlers on just on a little kind of a hanging piece of tree or something. And 
um, then they'll pee in that one spot. And it's, it, they're basically marking their little territory. Um, that's what I know a scrape to be, but I've never, I've very done very little whitetail specific hunting. I've, I've killed a lot of whitetails, but not in the maybe traditional sense um, that maybe a Midwest whitetail hunter would hunt. So, But elk scrape, don't they? We've got scrapes all over our property from them. Oh yeah. So it's for di- elk, it's, different? An elk, it's, it's an elk rub. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Cause I find, <laughs> cause they, they come in in the winter. So even when they're not rutting as such, yeah. they, they're rubbing. So are they just truly rubbing their antlers? Well, yeah. So they'll, they'll rub their antlers. Um, so so every animal that has antlers, it, it grows them every year. And then usually in the springtime, it, it drop, it loses those antlers. So, so every year they're, they're regrowing this giant set of antlers, which is, can be pretty impressive. I mean, a lot of these animals are, I mean, they'll grow a couple inches outward on every single day, some, sometimes more. So it's a pretty, pretty crazy cycle that, um, uh, bucks and bulls will go through. But, uh, as, as far as rubs go, um, you know, you'll be walking around the woods and there'll be a, little saplings that are just like the bark is just completely shredded off of them. And in Northern hemisphere, Montana, anyway, the bull elk will, they'll rub all that velvet off. And so, so when an antler is growing, it's covered this velvet stuff. It's kind of a, a thin little, little furry substance. And then usually by August 1st, their antlers, they harden. So they're not growing anymore. And then those bulls will first get a little, little taste of the rut and they'll go and they'll start just like, smashing all these trees and they'll basically they'll rub all this velvet off and get get their points nice and hard and pointy and shiny and you know they're getting ready to fight and so that's usually what a rub is elk will actually rub their antlers year round which is pretty interesting here the fallow deer will really start to leave scrapes and to rub um during the rut and the reason why this is a problem is they destroy all of the native trees the Farmers and the property owners want you to come in and shoot the bucks on the property because they keep ruining all the trees gotcha. and they really do a proper job of destroying. So like when I'm out hunting, the one thing I've really noticed is that the fallow seriously crush trees out here. So I don't know if that's just, maybe it's because I'm more experienced hunting in Australia than, than I am in BC. So maybe I just notice it more now, but yeah, um, there seems there's, yeah. there's, there doesn't seem to be a negative impact of deer, elk, moose, whatever, rubbing stuff in, I, I've never seen it. I mean, we're, we're more worried about beavers because beavers will go through and take out a whole aspen grove on a, on a creek bottom. So it's like beavers are the thing that really impact tree growth and porcupines a little bit too. But yeah, I, I mean, there's elk and stuff certainly rub a lot of trees, but man, when you're in a thick forest with 10 million trees, they could never do enough damage to, to cause an issue here. But yeah, that, that's really interesting that, that you have that issue down there. I never would have thought about that. Um, okay. My next definition that I wanted to ask you is actually um, not rut related, but shed related. So for people listening who have no idea what you're talking about as far as shedding antlers, but would like to learn more, how can they go out and do that? Because I honestly believe that shed hunting is a great way to get started hunting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, if you're looking for a reason to get out in the springtime, uh, shed hunting is incredible. And I guess my approach to hunting, it's, it's a 365 day cycle. You know, hunting is not just a fall activity. It's like, so let's, let's, let's start in the summer. So in in the summer, you're often, you're scouting, you're trying to figure out where these animals live and maybe hanging trail cameras, whatever. And then come fall, that's when you're hunting. And then as soon as winter happens, you know, you'll get a lot of snow in these areas and these animals will all move to their, to their winter range, which is 
often lower elevations, areas where they can find really good feed. And then uh, in the springtime, bucks and bulls will start dropping their antlers in, you know, March, April, May. And they'll often be kind of either in their winter range or between their winter range and their summer range. So you basically, you're constantly figuring out what lives in these areas. You're figuring out their movement patterns. You're, you're figuring out the different trails. You're just, you're just learning country and spending a bunch of time out in the woods, just kind of working on your woodsmanship, we'll, we'll say. But I mean, one, one cool thing with shed hunting specifically is you get a, I've picked so many, I, I picked a, a set of sheds off of a absolutely enormous bull elk this spring that I'll probably, I'll probably never have an opportunity to hunt. I'll, like I've never, I've, I've never even seen an elk that big during hunting season. But one cool thing with shed hunting is like, you're not limited to just like one set of antlers. You, you just keep doing it year round. But, but the information and what I've learned through shed hunting has been, it's, it's been pretty obvious what the, what the positive impact it's had for my fall hunting season, as far as just learning where animals live and kind of the quality of game that are in certain areas. So it's, it's pretty awesome. And I um, actually just shot a film series. Um, I've been, I've been doing this film series called, uh, it's called anyone's hunt. And the concept is to take all these different hunting opportunities that are available to anyone, whether it's a over the counter opportunity or something that's really easy to draw. But I, I break down all these hunting opportunities and then I actually go and do them. And uh, I, I, I did one this spring on shed hunting. Oh Yeah. I'm going to have to watch this. I'm super passionate about it. And, and I'm always going out looking for sheds and I feel so stupid because I genuinely don't know where to start. I look along fence lines in case they've dropped off when they jumped a fence line, but then I'll look That's at, smart. <laughs> but then I'll look at these thickets and I'm like, should I go into that thicket? Is it worth like, where do you even look? Where do you start? Well, it's more like zones, right? So it's like, okay, trying to figure out where are these animals wintering because Often, like, you know, if you see deer and elk in the summer, they're probably going to be way up on top of a mountain in some some big lush green meadows. But it's like, well, where would that animal be in, in like March and April? And at that time of year, they're, they're not going to be on top of the mountain because there's probably going to be like 10 feet of snow up there. They're, they're going to be down in a lower elevation somewhere that's probably probably a south facing slope that gets lots of sun exposure. So that that's just kind of a general like starting spot. And of, of course, you know, there's, there's zones like that everywhere. And so, so, so you take that as your starting, starting spot, and then you just go hike it and you go figure it out. And then, you know, after, after shed hunting for a couple of years, you're going to be like, oh, wow, I found success here. Or, or, oh, wow. I, you know, I saw a bunch of bulls here and then, you know, it's, it's compounding information, right? The, the more you do it, the more, the more you learn. But, uh, I think that's probably the best starting spot is just find those big south facing slopes that probably have, have wintering animals and use that as your starting spot to go hike. So are you finding them mostly in wide open spaces or are they under trees? Kind of both. I mean, shed hunting is extremely popular and competitive in the United States. And because of that, I don't, I don't, I'll find some in some open faces, but usually that stuff gets picked off pretty dang quick. And so what a lot of animals will do, even in like the cold winter months, they'll, they'll feed and probably spend the night out on a big wide open south facing slope. And then as soon as the sun comes up in the morning, even if it's 20 below, they're going to move, go up and over that south facing onto a north facing slope. It's probably just covered in timber and with 10 feet of snow, just those animals, they just have a will to survive. And they're like, Nope, I'm as as soon as it's light out, I'm going to cover. And so I, I find, I find quite a few sheds on these north facing slopes and some really, really thick jungly stuff for sure. Um, these animals is just, you know, anywhere they're going to go and try to seek cover. That's a really good place to look. But um, it's always great when you find them out in the open, though. 
Yeah, right. It makes it easier. So what about what about finding them in piles? I've got a friend who stumbled across the spot that had like 50 moose antler sheds. And that really oh, wow. yeah, it really you should see the photo. It's super cool. It was like years upon years of this accumulative shedding. Is that normal? I've never seen anything like that before. Like to, to lose, I'll bet somebody lose a bunch picked of them up and put them in that pile. <laughs> uh, may, you think? But no, it was all pretty spread yeah. out. It was almost like this moose was coming back to the same spot every year. Oh, well, okay. I mean, if, if they're if they're literally on top of each other, I would be like, the odds of that are so slow. No, slim. no, they're spread somebody out. Probably in, did it, but yeah, they're spread out in this one area. And I'm just wondering if that's okay. maybe that's a moose thing. I really don't know. I mean, maybe someone did collect a bunch, and then their truck bed fell open. <laughs> Who knows, right? But is, <laughs> have you ever found? a couple of years of accumulated sheds in the same area? For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, bulls are, are very habitual and, um, actually, so this spring, um, well, let's back up to, to, uh, basically a year and a half ago, I found a, I found a set of elk sheds in, in this spot. And then I went back a year later. So this, this past spring and literally in the same spot, I mean, maybe like a couple hundred yards away, I, I found that exact same bull. And so they, they are very habitual. They'll, unless they get a bunch of pressure from either humans or wolves or whatever, like they'll probably be in this exact same spot every single year. And so, so like, you know, if, if you go into some of these national parks that don't allow shed hunting, um, you can go walk around and it's like, you can see this, the same set of antlers off of the same deer or elk from multiple years within a, you know, maybe a half mile square area. It's like, you'll, you'll find one antler, then you go to the next one. You're like, oh, well, this one's a fresh one and it looks identical to that one. So it's, it's pretty wild. These, these animals really, really are that habitual. They'll, they'll go back to the, basically the same exact spot. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So I've got a couple of really silly questions just for my own curiosity. Do they grow back the same shape every year? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. For probably it's the genetic reason they'll grow kind of the same. There's one bull that I have trail camera footage of from, I've, I've got trail camera footage of him the last four years in a row. And he's this real, he's like this little tiny little funky thing. And he's got like, he's got like six points on one side and two on the other, but they're super short. And like, some, it's like something's wrong with him. But every single year he grows back almost the same, but just a little bit bigger. I suppose it's kind of like a, like a human, you know, fingerprint. It's, it's always the same every year. So it, unless they get damaged, like unless they're pedicles, like the base of the antler, unless it gets damaged, they're probably going to grow very similar um, every year and hopefully just get bigger. So. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Then here's my next silly question. Do they just drop off? Do they rub them off? Do they bump them off? Do they paw them off? Like how do they come off? The most, well, I think it's still a theory. I don't know if anyone's actually done a study on why the antlers actually fall off when they do, but basically that what they've, what they've learned is that when a buck or bull, when, when they drop their antlers, that's when their testosterone is at its lowest level. And so when it's lowest level, they, they don't have anything left in them. And that's when their, their antlers usually just fall off. So basically like, you know, the antlers fuse to their head, but that, that little, that connection point will become unfused. And I mean, they'll fall off. I mean, you know, I found some in bushes. I've found some like in fences. So it's like, you know, they might be rubbing a bush and they'll pop their antler off. Sometimes they might just be walking along and the antlers fall off. I found some in roadways. So they'll, they'll, they'll usually they'll jump a fence coming into a roadway. And that just that, that jarring action of jumping will cause their antler to fall off. And so, yeah, every year I usually find one road shed. So that's a, that's a fun, fun time. So. <laughs> um, okay. I guess my, my, I've got a bunch of questions for you, but I'll save them for probably another day um, when I see you in person hopefully one day soon. But um, 
photography. So how do you manage going out and taking photos versus hunting? Like, is it the same as the the situation we face in fishing where you have to either decide, look, I'm fishing or I'm taking photos? Can can you do both at the same time? I mean, you can, but, you know, I think if you're going to do anything right, you really got to, you really got to focus. And so, I mean, I'll, I'll self-document a lot of my hunts, but it's, it's kind of, it can take away from the experience of hunting. And so like, if you're out there to hunt, I think you should just hunt and like, yeah, I mean, shoot photos here and there, but like, you know, as far as having like, when I'm, when I'm actually documenting a hunt or, or shooting photos for brands, I mean, I, I don't even bring binos. I've got two camera bodies like mounted on me at all times. One, one with a zoom lens, one with a wide angle. And it's like, I try to remove myself a little bit from the whole situation. I just try to document the hunt. Um, but when, when I'm hunting, I'm, I'm full, full, like in the moment of hunting, I'm, I won't even, I usually don't even bring a camera. I'll bring my iPhone because it's, it's handy and it lives in my pocket. But, uh, yeah, I think you, you separate the two for sure. Do you think that someone who's listening right now, who is interested in hunting, but isn't quite sure, but who is definitely interested in photography, do you think that they could really start to understand hunting and appreciate hunting or at least get a taste of it by, instead of hunting with a weapon, hunting with a camera? For sure. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's tricky because hunting, hunting is the motivation that gets me out there. And so, you know, everybody's got their own motivation, right? So it's like, you know, if, if you're a backcountry skier and you're like, you're motivated to go, you know, hike six hours, get to the top of a mountain to potentially have like, you know, belly deep snow, like it, it all boils down to motivation. And so if, if you're motivated to get out there and do it, like, absolutely. I mean, it's just another, if, if you're an outdoorsy person, or if you're looking for something to, to motivate you to get outside, like, absolutely pick up a camera and shed hunt or whatever. And, uh, actually my, so my friend, uh, Zach Bowden and I, we started a, um, he's, he's a photographer, filmmaker. Um, he's been doing it for about 10 years. I've been doing it for 10 years. We collaborated and started a online course and mentorship program called the hunting photographer. And, um, again, it's an online masterclass. So anybody that signs up, you can take this masterclass that, uh, we spent probably 45 days filming this thing in my home office slash house. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's really it's really designed for people that want to take their skills with a camera and turn it into a business. And, you know, we certainly focus on the hunting industry for sure. Um, but that's not, you know, I think a lot of what we teach applies to uh, really any facet of work or really any facet of life that you want to go down. And so, um, but anyways, Zach and I, we're a total open book. We share, we obviously dive in quite a bit on, um, like photography techniques, but what, what we really dive into it's cause like anybody can take, can take a photo. You can learn how to take a photo, um, in a lot of ways, but the business aspect is what I think really stands apart in this course versus a lot of others. And so, so, I mean, again, if people are looking to turn their skills into a career, um, we dive in super deep. I would say this is the the meat and potatoes of the courses on the business side of things. So pitching clients, gaining clients, you know, just acquiring business relationships, where to network, where to meet people, um, how to invoice, how to set up your accounting. Like, Oh, wow. I mean, you everything. guys cover all of yeah. that. Yeah, good. Yeah, we try to cover it all because and a lot of people, especially that are interested in this, they're, you know, either they're fresh out of out of high school or they're in their, their, their younger twenties. And they're like, Hey, I'm, I'm really passionate about this, but I was like, I just, I don't know, um, kind of the way. And, and really before this course, there hasn't really been a, you know, there hasn't really been someone saying like, Hey, here's kind of a path. And so, 
Um, so yeah, with Zach and I's course, I mean, we're, we're, we love helping people and there, there's so many people that, um, and there's so much opportunity, um, out there, especially in the hunting and outdoor community, P- partly as a result of social media. I mean, gosh, people and brands need so much, you know, uh, photo and video assets to promote their products because of this just massive explosion of the online world. Um, there's just a huge opportunity. So, so anyway, um, yeah, check out, uh, the hunting photographer.com. Um, we've also got an Instagram account called the hunting photog and a podcast. So, uh, it's a really good value add. And that was actually my last question is where could people find you? So that's exactly where they can reach you. Um, is there anything that yeah. you would like to add or to ask me while I've got you here? I guess, well, I guess I already touched on it with, uh, so one, one project that I've been super passionate about, which I mentioned earlier in this podcast is, um, the, the anyone's hunt, um, film series. And, um, you know, they're, they're saying at least nationwide in the United States that hunter numbers are decreasing and have been for, you know, 10 years, I guess. And it's like, that's kind of a scary thing. It's like, Holy smokes. Like it, it seems like with social media, there's a lot more people out hunting, but the, the tag numbers, you know, tell it all. People are buying less tags every single year. And so, so I started this, this film series um, in partnership with, with Onyx Maps uh, and a few other brands to, to try to like curb that a little bit. Cause there's, there's so many cool, awesome hunting opportunities that nobody knows about, or the barrier to entry is so, um, it's so difficult that it's like, I don't even know how to go about doing this hunt. And so I, so I started this series called anyone's hunt and we've done, uh, four of them now. Um, basically, yeah, it's like out of state hunts or in state hunts. It, it's, you know, like you could come all the way from Australia or I've, I've got a buddy that lives in British Columbia that's come down to, to Montana and Arizona to, to join in on a couple of these. And, um, again, our, the main goal is to just try to get more people hunting and try to show people like, Hey, this, this is an easy and an attainable thing that you can do. Um, it's still hunting. It's still really hard. We've only in the, the many series that we've done, we've only harvested one animal, but, uh, but again, we, we, we show people how to do it and we try to inspire people to get out there and um, try it out for themselves. So, um, yeah, check out that series and yeah, it, it would just be awesome to see more people take advantage of these, these hunts that are truly available to anyone. Yeah, I'll definitely, and I'll link all this as well. You know, it's funny. I, I made the decision exactly 10 years ago that I was going to start getting into hunting and didn't have a clue where to start. And honestly, the only reason why I was able to get started was because I had friends, some friends who did some hunting who were willing to help me out, but I would have killed for you guys 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's fun to share that information. It's like, even now, I mean, like the research that I have to go through to figure out how to do these out of state hunts, like it's hard. It's like, holy smokes. Like I've been in this hunting circle for quite a few years now. So trying to imagine people just getting into it, it's like, that's a very daunting thing. So I think, I think all the states and provinces, they just need to reduce the barrier to entry and try to try to try to make it easier for everybody. I think that would be a, a huge, huge impact or that would have a huge impact on hunting and the longevity of it. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time. And I'm sure we will speak to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.